0: This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniform Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. Government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, practical for your practice we
1: give you actionable intel to support what you do one colleague to another hello everyone and welcome to practical for your practice andy santanello here and this is actually our final episode of season three we've made it all the way we made it um so thank you for taking the journey with us we hope that you've enjoyed the topics for this uh for this season can't wait for uh, season four but this is our last episode for a little while, so uh, it's bittersweet. Um, and you've already heard Kevin. Kevin's with me today. Hello. Hi, everybody. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm hanging in there. How are you? Good. How are you feeling about this being our last episode for a little it,
0: while? It feels like an accomplishment, really. Like I will say, when we first started um, kicking around ideas for the podcast, the idea was, you know, we just kind of hang out and talk like colleagues at, In fact, I think I think it was that you and Jenna and I were having a conversation one day and we're like, why aren't we recording this? Why aren't we like letting the whole world listen to us just talk? And and there was there was a certain level of arrogance there that anybody would care about our conversations. But I think in some ways, you know, we've had some really very cool conversations. We'll have another one today. And and so it feels a bit of like an accomplishment. And, you know, we've the, the podcast has lasted this long and we're still we're looking forward to a season four. I'm going to reframe since we're going to be talking about thoughts today and reframing as maybe a
1: technique. I like to reframe it as, you know, we were having a good time chatting with each (laughs) other and geeking out. And we just wanted to let other people, if they chose to join the party, I think that's a great reframe. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Speaking of reframes and great reframes, we are really excited to have a fellow CDP here with us today. Dr. Jeff Mann. Hey, Hey how's it
2: going? Kevin, really. uh, Thank you guys for having me here. I'm looking forward to this.
1: So Jeff, you know, you and I did a, uh, Basically, what we're going to do today—we did a podcast even before there was a podcast. You remember that early on, yeah. Pandemic. You know, we're
2: we're talking about telehealth and yes. all that fun stuff in the in the pandemic, right? And uh, yeah, oh my God, it's that I, that feels like both five years ago and
1: yesterday, all at the same time. Right? Like <laughs> right. That time has been distorted. Yeah. Yes. Hashtag COVID time, right? So, <laughs> yes. uh, and and. um I don't, I don't know what to make of the fact that it's taken us three seasons <laughs> to invite <laughs> it to, the, you know, um, maybe. Well, like maybe. I said, you guys, I, I'm going to go under the
2: assumption that you guys wanted to make sure that you really got things professional before you brought me right. on board, right? Work like, out the bugs. Yeah, exactly. You're like, can we bring Jeff on yet? No, no, no. Podcast isn't good <laughs> enough yet.
0: Yeah, yeah. We I got think to- we could also make an argument that that Jeff, you're our first repeat guest. I mean, if we're still counting that, that COVID podcast, because we, we said for a number of our guests, we're like, Hey, you're really great. We're going to have you back on. And we haven't had people back on yet. Not because they aren't great. They really are. But we also have so many other great people we want to have on the podcast. So, so Jeff, you're our first repeat kind of. So now I am honored. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, So can you tell our listeners a bit about uh, who you are and what you do for the center? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, So uh, psychologist, right, I I think would be the the first uh, adjective that I use to describe myself. Um, I've been with the CDP for almost 10 years now. And prior to that, um, spent some time in the uh, the United States Air Force. I did my internship and kind of first tour there with them. So that's kind of how I got into the, the military process. Um, you know, kind of doing my my reverse biology. And before that, though, I was working um, in the IT IT industry. Um, oh, I was a data analyst. Um, I did my undergrad training in computer science and and those sorts of things. So so thinking about systems and problems and and those sorts of things has always been um, a big part of who I am. And, you know, it's funny, people would always say, well, you, you know, you, you went to such a different, um, field. And I was like, actually not like, I'm just solving problems. Right. At the end of the day, I'm solving problems. I'm using different tools, right. Um, that's what I was doing before I was simply solving problems. And now I'm, I'm using a slightly different medium, um, with which to solve problems.
0: Jeff, that's a, a kind of a, an unexpected overlap a little bit. I actually started as a computer science major in undergrad and I switched to psychology probably about halfway through. Um, so oh, I was a cool. Psychology major when I graduated. Yeah. And it's it's funny, like I always get the question, like, how did you get from computer science to psychology? Like what what makes that connection? So I'm going to ask you the same question because I, I keep getting asked that. Like, how did how did you make that? transition. Well,
2: well, for me, it was actually, I mean, I was working in the industry for about six years. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, it was the Year 2000 was a thing. I don't know if you guys remember that. I, I really date myself with some Y2K. of my friends mm-hmm. and my friends' children and I'm like, "Oh, you remember Y2K?" and they're like, "I was born in <laughs> 2003." And nice. I'm like, "Oh, wow. Like that's yeah. So so I was really I was working in that industry for quite some time. Um, but I just like I was good at it. I found it interesting, but I was very unfulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking up the chain at the things that I could do. And I did not want to do any of it. Right. <laughs> and so I really started down this journey of like trying to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. And I remember there was this have you ever heard of the book? Like, what color is your parachute? I want to say it was the, it's like this career planning book or hey, whatever it is. Haven't heard of it. And and there was just this line in there that was just like, you know, if you find yourself endlessly fascinated about um, this this process, maybe you should think about psychology. And I was like, was, it was like this light bulb moment mm-hmm. for me because I never I never took any undergraduate classes. I was all science based. I was going to be an engineer. I had a my double major was in mathematics. Like, you know, I was like thinking about working for the NSA and doing um uh, cryptology and and like all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah. And, and, but I was just, I was unhappy. And so I found psychology and, and once I kind of took that leap, I just, I was, I, I never turned back. I I, re-
1: uh, I can't say I've never regretted it, but for the most part, I've never regretted it. We, we absolutely need to do a, an episode on origin stories. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'll get, I'll give you a little piece of my my origin story, and then I think we should probably get to our topic for today. Because <laughs> this is going to wind up being uh, 17. This could be like season four, if we just keep going. <laughs> right. oh, I like story. it. Uh, so <laughs> part of my origin story, worked in a fish market, worked in the seafood market. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that really, really helped me eventually when I was working at an OCD specialty clinic and we had to do all sorts of exposures to gross oh, things. Oh, yeah. I almost, was going to say almost, right? almost perfect nothing. environment. Yeah. Nothing grosses me out anymore <laughs> <laughs> after being in the fish market. That's oh, exposure man. therapy right there. Yeah, right? Exactly. So you never know. You never know what those previous life experiences that are in your reinforcement history will. Uh, help you to do later on. So Jeff, you wrote me an email on February 10th and then that email you asked, Hey, I wanted to reconnect and get, uh, and love to get your perspective on act and the concept of thought challenging. And so I wrote back and I said, this is a good podcast
2: topic. <laughs> yes. And then um, refused to talk to me ever since then, because you wanted to save it all for this.
1: Well, I did send you a ridiculously long email about RFT. Yes. Uh, and that, so just, just to be fair. And then yep. I've been ignoring you since then. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm really curious about kind of your, your kind of motivation and interest in that particular question. Uh,
2: yeah. yeah. So can and you say so a bit about that? I think one of the first things is I've just been, I, I think, you know, I'm, I still feel like I'm fairly new to this industry, right? Like, even though I've been doing it for a little over a decade now, um, but you see kind of these trends, right? And these waves and um, processes and, and the latest wave, it's like, I see everybody wants, you know, because the role that I have in the CDP, I work with the military and I help them coordinate their trainings and everybody wants ACT, right? And we, you know, you've, you um, have recently developed like the ACT training for the center. And every time I talk to people, they're like, how, when and how can I get into the Act training, right? Um, And so, act has really become this like you know, there's this fever pitch of of desire for it, right? Even and in my private practice, I get patients, you know, inquiring, "Do you do act? Are you an act therapist?" You know, all this kind of stuff. And so, um, I was really like, you know, I've really been looking into it, but um, I think a big part of it is trying to understand where it fits right in the world. I think what I've found with with ACT is, it's definitely a, a very new set of um, terms and semantics, right, and and those sorts of things. And so, my general philosophy is that um, there's no such thing as an ACT problem or a CBT problem or a psychodynamic problem or you know or, or anything along those lines, right? Um, that there are this. Th- th- like we have different ways of getting at you know kind of the same mechanism, and so I really started thinking about this because I I really I, I think there's a lot of things about ACT that I really really enjoy you know especially the values based piece um, associated with it because I've really started to integrate that um, and I started seeing that in a lot of different places. Um, I, I did a actually an interview with Tom Horvath um, who is one of the founders of um, Smart Recovery and he really integrates a lot of values-based work in his um, focus, uh, you know, in the, in the smart recovery groups that he does. And that's a big part of the overall process. And so I was starting to see, it's like, okay, like, where's this fitting in and how does it fit into the larger picture? And, and that's where I really started thinking about, let's see, like, cause thought challenging for me, at least really thought, um, you know, now I really even like to, I like to, play with the semantics, right? I don't even like to call it thought challenging anymore. I like to call it thought analysis, right? We're going to we're going to examine thought examination
1: and the But those even sorts of things. even just the language around it uh, has has changed. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's sort of your thinking about and uh, sort of evolution of thinking about even just how you deal with problematic thoughts really kind of mirrors a, a much larger trend that's happening in the field towards process-based therapy. And yes. um, just a few years ago, you know, Stefan Hoffman, who has been sort of like the he's one of the most world famous proponents of sort of traditional CBT and Steve Hayes, as you know, the the godfather of act yep. um, really <laughs> started a dialogue between the two of them about like how is this really left twicks and right Mm twicks? you know you know are are we doing different things and and you know out of that came um this new sort of field of process based originally it's called process based cbt and they're moving to just process based therapy but you hit the nail on the head there are all of these sort of common processes that probably good therapy is tapping into and the different technologies. And ACT, for example, is just uh, an application of relational frame theory and contextual behavioral science. Um, and it's a form of process-based therapy if you want to use that lens. But there's other types of process-based therapy. You know, so you can do a traditional CBT model from that approach um, in a more flexible way. And there might be different ways of getting at and working with some of the different elements. And one of the elements that is sort of a common target area process in process based therapy is cognition. Yeah, right. Like that is,
2: and that's one of the things that I've always really been trying to focus on more and more. Is this a, and and because I've even really embraced behaviorism as well too right I mean my my kind of journey was as, like I was super into like existential psychotherapy you know existential theory like in grad school right and I still love like existential therapy but well, I there,
1: found there, there's your values and motivation right there and actually like <laughs> motivation slash values yeah. in process based therapy is another really critical domain that is often important you know, when working with clients. So, sorry for... Yeah, no, and and, and I've
2: just found myself, but I, I guess I would, if I really wanted to describe myself from a theoretical orientation, if I'm thinking about it, it's like I'm a pragmatist. I'm like, what works, right? Um, and... Um, you know, And that's why it's like, you now was like, you know what, when I started, especially when I started doing like some OCD type of work and that sort of thing, I was like, that's behaviorism stuff, right? Like, and, and exposure, like this is like, we could talk about this stuff all day long, but it's not going to come anywhere close to like, you know, doing this sort of thing and thinking about, you know, behavioral activation with depression. And um, there's all these different tools that I think really help us um rather than getting kind of locked into it's like either act you know this one theoretical orientation and i guess some might describe it as eclecticism and i don't know how do you feel like process based therapy kind of captures that notion of eclecticism is it is it maybe a better ver- you know a better way of looking at it because i know that's sometimes that's question. been yeah. derided
1: by evidence based proponents well, right i mean this is a really critical question That you're asking and so here here's sort of my perspective on it but i also think uh, i think this is a pretty good reflection of what the current science is suggesting and so when i think about when some normally when i hear a clinician say i'm eclectic to me what i i immediately assume they mean is they're technically eclectic like Mm, they're using different techniques and cobbling them together in a way that makes sense to them but often um when you talk to somebody who says they're eclectic and you ask them about their approach to therapy, they'll just tell you about the techniques they like, but there won't be sort of a a really clear underlying sense of which processes they think are important. Their Conceptualization skills may not be, they don't have a working model. And so I think what process-based therapy, so then you have folks who are sort of on the other side of things where they are very much, um, you know, interested and work from a particular model, but that model may not actually be science based. Right. You know, it might just be more like a philosophy, which, you know, philosophy is great. We all have a philosophy. It's a stance we take towards understanding whatever it is we're looking at. It's pre-scientific. So you can't really argue that one philosophy is better than another. It's just where you stand from. Yeah.
2: And it's, it's kind of like Wolf, Science grows from philosophy, right? We well, start with philosophy,
1: yeah. and then we move and towards. And in the, fact, yep. there are different philosophies of science yep. as well. So there's like a mechanistic philosophy, which is what you know most science-based endeavors are based on, and then there's functional contextualism, which ACT is based on. So the the question you asked though about you know what's the difference between being eclectic and maybe being process-based is that. Um, being a process-based therapist, from my perspective, and I think this is um, pretty in line with what process-based therapists and researchers would say is we're choosing to focus on processes that have been shown scientifically to be uh, really important in maintaining psychological distress and Mm, functioning. And also when you can sort of focus on shifting those processes, they tend to result in good outcomes, both in terms of specific maybe symptom presentations or diagnoses, but more importantly, when people start to behave in these particular ways, they start to live lives that have more connection to purpose and meaning, and they're suffering less.
2: Yeah, and and, and that really makes me, you know, recall a supervisor that I had. You know, he with the phrase that he would always use, he's like, "You got to think about process, not content." Right? Like, you need to think about yes, the content is interesting, but it's not the thing. Right. And, and that even makes me, I, one of my phrases and, and, and Andy, you, I know you are a, a, a Zen Buddhist um, practitioner and teacher and all those sorts of things. And and maybe you can help me with the etiology of this, right. But the concept of the finger pointing at the moon, right. Yeah. um You know, it, it's kind of like, let's not, um, uh, mistake the, the finger pointing at the moon for the moon sort of thing. And I think sometimes we get focused on content, right, and and see that as the, as the moon when really, it's like,, oh, the process is really what we're trying to understand and, and get at.
1: Well, I won't I won't get into the weeds about about Zen. Uh, I got into the weeds about Zen a little a little bit on our spirituality episode. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, I was actually I was listening but, to that a little bit as I was prepping for this. I wanted to make but, sure you know yeah. what I was getting myself into.
1: But I'll you know I'll <laughs> say one thing about that and then relate it back to what you were saying about process and really just kind of bring it down to a clinical example. So in in Zen, when I'm working with my Zen students, um, often people will come with you know I want to be enlightened or I want to mm. be calm or and really the thing I, I really very quickly try to get them to let go of this outcome and really focus on are you doing your zazen every day are you meditating every day tell me about like what time of day you're doing it are you getting on the cushion every day it's all about the practice yep and i think very similarly um you know we can get really especially if you are a consumer of evidence-based psychotherapy you can get very much uh sort of focused on outcomes and yep Really forget about the most important thing is what you do in the room as a therapist. So uh, focusing on and and not only that, but are you doing things in the therapy room in a in a in a way that is aligned with processes that are going to help your client move towards a a life of less suffering? And are you doing these things in a way that are going to help them then do similar things outside of therapy? So if a client comes back, for example, um, after a week and says, hey, I've been feeling much better this week. It's not that I don't care about that. (laughs) I care about that. And I'll say, that's great. But what I'm really curious about is, like, have have you been doing anything differently this week um, that might've led to that? And so if the answer is, well, actually, no, I just um I'm on vacation this week or <laughs> or nothing bad happened. This or nothing week, bad right? happened. They
2: externalize it, right? right? I mean, in other yeah. words, I am at the behest of the winds of
1: my life versus sort of thing rather than having any sort of, of kind of agency. Yeah, um, like versus like, you know, uh we we talked about a lot about um you know, you know, working with these unhelpful thoughts I have and I've been trying you know, this technique that we worked on. And I've noticed that those thoughts haven't been impacting me as much and they're yeah. feeling better. That, that's a, to me, that's a, and even the person came back and said, I've been practicing this thing and I'm getting better at practicing it. And I still have all this stress in my life and I'm not feeling differently, but I I'm acting differently. And that, that just sense yeah. of, I, I feel like this is moving in the right direction to me is going to be a better sign process wise. And, and, and that's where like
2: my existential heart has really kind of <laughs> grasped on to some of the, like the, the, the principles of act, right. Where it's kind of like this. And, and I guess I want to even hopefully take, it's not too far down a rabbit hole, but even this idea of reducing suffering um, at some level, I, you know, I think I was reading in one of Yalom's books, right. And talking about existentialism is that sometimes the outcome of Um, therapy is is not necessarily less suffering and pain, right? It, It is actually acknowledgement and acceptance of it, right? We don't get rid of it. Um, there's greater like awareness um, of those sorts of things. And so I think, yeah, I really like this. I, you know, and, and again, functional analysis, I think is another one that, that really kind of, uh, I see like the, was like, oh, let's really understand the function of, of kind of what this thing is doing for you. Right. And I, and I feel like there's a big part of that, you know, in the, in the act, like like you're saying the the theory that it's based on, um, but yeah, this, this way of of kind of getting away from the outcome and altering the problem you know, did I make you happy in therapy or did I help give you a way to move through the world that helps you feel more um in control, more centered, um, more powerful, right? Like those sorts of things anyway. It's, uh,
1: yeah, it's it's like the proverbial very cliched, you know, you give a man a fish. Yeah. He can eat for that day. You teach a, a man to fish; they can eat his whole life. I don't know what the connection. I've mentioned fish and fish. I markets. think so. The connection is back to your fish market. <laughs> yeah,
2: coming back to fish and OCD <laughs> and exposure therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess you know the, the question I would have, Andy, is we're as we're kind of talking about this a bit, Kind of, I, I guess, at least coming back to my thoughts, it's like let's talk about this idea of. <laughs> what started as thought challenging to what I like to call thought analysis or thought examination. Right. And I don't know, how, how do you think that does it fit in to act? Cause my experience has been right. And this is kind of maybe my evolution that it, it's, it's been really necessary to have some form of framework to kind of put our, a container, for the mental processes that we experience, right? Um, And because if we don't have a way of describing it in a way that myself and the other person that I'm working with can both agree on, then we have a really hard time communicating back and forth about that process.
1: Well, so here's what I'd say. I'm trying to figure out which question to answer first. (laughs) There's a couple of good things in there. Mm. Um, I mean, on, on the one hand, I would say from more of a, if I'm going to be in more of an act perspective, like even before we get to structure and things like analysis, what I'm going to be very curious about and help my clients to be curious about is developing awareness. Mm-hmm. First of all, like just, can you notice that you're having thoughts and also notice uh, maybe there are certain thoughts that you get more entangled with? Mm-hmm. And how well are you able to get distance from your thoughts to see like there's a you and then there's a thought that you're having? Yeah. And then we can start to talk about what are you what are you doing with those thoughts? And one of those things might actually already be analysis. And that may work or may not work depending on the context. So, you know, one of the problems a lot of people get stuck with is they uh, they Notice they're having unhelpful thoughts. They notice they're having unhelpful feelings. And then they start to ask a very reasonable question, which is why, why am I Mm. feeling this way? And then that's just sort of the hook that, you know, drags you down into rumination. Uh, Or um, I'm feeling nervous about what's going to happen in the future. What might happen? What if? And then that's the hook that sort of, you know, so like analysis, prediction in certain circumstances works and doesn't in others. and so. Like one of the things i I think about these days is really, and I try to help clients see is first of all, can you notice what thoughts are happening? Can you notice what your responses are, and let's like really walk that out through time and see whether or not it makes sense to do that from yeah. a logical perspective is this actually working to reduce your suffering are are you getting any useful actionable intel about what to do next so i I hold I hold analysis or really any mental process lightly. And it's always going to be about what's working for the client.
0: Well, and if I so if I can think about trying to distill in overly simplistic terms, what I, what I'm hearing that so, you know, it almost seems like from, let's say, just a CBT perspective, the approach seems to be like, look, if we can identify your unhelpful thoughts your dysfunctional thoughts and challenge them and help you form more functional thoughts then suffering dissipates (laughs) and what i've learned i'm you know i'm certainly new to act as well and what i I think i understand from act is is there you know like you just said let's start off just do you even know you're having thoughts and it's not just you know can we find the thoughts that are you know problematic and causing you these things but more about let's be curious about what do you, how do you even respond to those thoughts? Right? Yeah. Like on, on the one hand, from a CBT perspective, the response seems to be like, we need to categorize them as, you know, useful or not useful or functional or dysfunctional. And then we need to work on the ones that are dysfunctional, but instead from, from an act point of view, it almost seems like it, it's just like, look, we're, we're having thoughts and you know, it's not so much about the content of the thought or, or and there's certainly not a good or bad thought. It's like, what do you do with them? You know, how do you respond to them? And, and, and is it, it's not that a thought is good or bad or, or necessarily functional or dysfunctional, but is it consistent with your values? Is it not? What? How do you respond yeah. to that thought? You know, it, you know and it, and did and I, I did, capture it or is that? You
1: did You did. Okay. And one thing I would like to add to that is uh, useful versus not useful, I think, from a cognitive therapy perspective, traditionally speaking. And I don't want to make I don't want to make a caricature of these two people. Right, right. Like, I agree. Traditionally speaking, I think that you the judgment about useful, not useful is based on content of the thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. From more of an act perspective, process-based perspective is um, useful versus not useful. Does engaging with that thought work or not work based on the outcome you get from you know that that particular action? So I want to say something about content for a minute because um, it, it it seems logical That if you have uh, thoughts that have like a negative balance to them, the content wise, that if you replace them with more positive thoughts, then it's going to lead to better outcomes for somebody. But you can also have a problem where, so if you're familiar with the self esteem literature, used to be that the idea was that, you know, you really needed to teach kids to have really positive thoughts about themselves all of the time. Mm -hmm. And that was going to lead to better outcomes. And so if you know about the outcomes of that, that those efforts, it actually wound up creating like these little narcissists who, yeah, are, right. very, who have these very fragile egos. Right. Um, and so even like really over attachment to positive thoughts, yeah. quote unquote, can be just as dysfunctional.
0: So, and I think to be fair, not always in CBT is it like we replace the, the negative valence right. thoughts with positive valence, but you know, in some ways, and maybe this is where you know, a lot of my training has, has been so convoluted. I've had acts, their act therapy oriented supervisors and mentors, you know, and CBT very CBT oriented ones. But, you know, I I would even say that just to be fair, from some of these CBT oriented folks, they would say we're not we're not trying to replace negative valence thoughts with positive ones, but more of can we, you know, can we balance it a little bit? Can we instead of focusing only on negative, can we have an acknowledgement of both sides of it? Or even, um, you know, kind of can we can we hold less tightly to the negative ones and allow for the possibility of you know that more balance too and that, that's where I, I start to feel like we're you know, get some a little bit of some blurry boundaries here between what we might even think about as traditional cbt versus more of these process-based
2: yeah and, and i think the 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 way that i really have approached that is you know when i was early in my therapeutic years that's really what i thought right at cbt is we we replace you know um, yeah. Positive thoughts with negative thoughts, and really, what I've evolved to is kind of this idea of you no, know, we 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 kind of right size it. What we do is we take out, we acknowledge the reality of one's emotional experience, right, and and shift things in the beginning from um, I am a failure to right now I feel like a failure. Right. And and even helping them see that there's a big difference between those two, that, that one is is the reality of what they're telling themselves, right? I am, this is permanent, this is forever, versus saying this is how I feel right now, right? This is my experience right here in this moment. Right. And getting to that place of being able to say, okay, that's how you're feeling in the moment. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. So let's let's talk about where we're gonna go from there. And that's really where I've evolved to from, from kind of like a, a thought analysis or thought challenging process is not to say we're going to replace because I just it, I just felt like it never worked right like it just <laughs> it never really like it just never really worked for
1: me that, that and that is sort of one of the main predictions that you know uh, research has borne out with RFT you, you can't mm-hmm. really delete thoughts from your mind and it's very consistent with what we know about just from behavioral psychology you can't really delete behavior from repertoires right so the example i always give of that with my clients is i'll ask uh usually with i work with mostly adult clients when is the last time that crawling on the floor was your main way of getting around Mm, yeah and they'll laugh and they'll say you know and i'll say you know but probably you there was a time in your life that was the primary way that you used to call uh, get around. And then, you know, if the circumstances presented themselves, you know, could you pretty easily start to call around again? Mm-hmm. Most people can realize, yeah, like thinking works the same way, just because it once, once ways of thinking kind of get in there, all it takes is the right cue to bring those thoughts back out. So even if yep. you elaborate the network, you can't ever eliminate, you know, something from it. And, which... and,
2: and as you talk about that, what I, it really makes me th- like thought I was having earlier developmentally, right. Is that, yeah, we learn to walk and run and do some really amazing things. Right. But oftentimes the way that our metacognition, the way that we think about thinking, it, it just grows, it's, it's grows in an unstructured, undiscussed, unarticulated way. Right. And, and that's where I really think that early level of framework is, is, is helping people develop an intentional form of metacognition, mm-hmm. right? Like a way that they choose rather than, well, this is just how I've done it since I was six years old sort of thing, right? And I've never talked about it with anybody else, right? And and so that's a, a way, and that's what I think about is it's like, okay, we got to kind of develop some form of, way that we're going to think about thinking, right? Some some form of way of understanding it, bringing it to a level, like you were saying, awareness, right? Bringing it to a, a level of consciousness. And so that's what I'm always wrestling with is like, what's a useful... Way to do that. And I don't really care if it's psychodynamic or ACT or CBT or you know Sesame Street. Like right? like I said, I, I like to see myself as <laughs> as kind of like an agnostic
1: in that perspective. Uh, so, or so here's here's a question yeah. about that. So all right. So if the if maybe the common ground here, and you can use your, the word metacognitive, the term metacognitive awareness, awareness. Um, you know, if if we thought about uh, how we might work with. A you know an unhelpful thought from different perspectives. Mm, yeah. How might you so from a CBT perspective, like a traditional CBT perspective? Uh, and I'm I'm putting you on the spot here. So.
2: I, I was gonna say for, first, you're assuming that
1: I I, I adhere to <laughs> British okay. British CBT. Well, but, I mean, like uh, anyway. like like for example, like a like a thought record. Yes, you know? absolutely right. If you sort of look at it through the lens of developing maybe more metacognitive awareness, a way of thinking about thinking, how like how might that be similar to, um, for example, an act you know helping someone sort of when they notice an unhelpful thought, say I I am having the thought that right like
2: if you were I mean for me it I see it as a way it's like I don't really see them as different I see one as writing it down. Hmm. Um right is, is that and and what i like about that is, is i this this process of externalization um is perspective I, taking it's yeah, very important, right? And I think in that early phase, they they need a way to externalize, right? Whether that's saying it out loud to me, whether that's writing it down, right? And 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 I really, you know, kind of go into this idea. It's like it's just like you were saying um, before um, about learning to crawl versus walk and run, right? Like we we have to start with um, a rudimentary way to do it, and I think doing a lot of these activities mentally early on is very. Different. Difficult for individuals, right? And they need some sort of mechanism to kind of get it, get it out uh, outside of themselves. And and if it's only in therapy, well, that's just one hour a week, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why, well, if they're willing to do some journaling or something, right? And and so I look a lot of this not as like, oh, we have to do it this way. I look at it as, a, as an externalizing perspective taking mechanisms. That yeah, kinda, I don't know.
1: Well, yeah, and and externalizing perspective taking. Mechanism, and yes. there's all sorts of ways that you can train that. Like yes. if if that's the process, you're going to exactly that of is the all process. Sorts of way, all sorts, like like a, like like drills in a soccer practice. You yep. can think of all sorts of ways of shaping that particular process, and so and
2: that is the analogy that I use. I when, with concept. Have you ever have you ever done a sport, played an instrument, like anything? You know, most people have done something like that, and I'm like, did you ever practice? <laughs> i like, yeah. And I'm like, why'd you, you know, we got to go through the, why'd you practice and, mm-hmm. and, and really helping them seem like, and, and really, I like to give them confidence because it says, no, I don't, doesn't matter if you've never been good at this. Right. Um, any, you know, my belief in and I love like, what is it? Like the Malcolm Gladwell, well, that's not Malcolm Gladwell. I forget who the, the original author of the 10,000 hours is. I think Malcolm Gladwell, you know, wrote it, but the, the 10,000 hours research is really about the concept of intentional practice is how one becomes good at something, right? Not um, accidental practice, not um, you, you know just time spent with somebody, but no intentional practice at getting good at something. And and that's where I think this this idea of externalization and and perspective taking is something that that anybody can practice and get good at. Yep. And so the question is, well, what is what like you were saying, there's a there's a hundred different ways to do that and what's going to work within that individual's um uh life and framework.
1: This is, I think, exactly the like for this right here is I think the main distinction and like another answer to the, the question you asked earlier, which is what's the difference between being an eclectic therapist who uses lots of different techniques versus a process based therapist? If you know what it is that you're trying to train the client to do, you may use wildly different techniques that don't look formally like they should be related. So, you know, um, I'm going to get reported for this, you know, but (laughs) it's not uncommon for me. So, right. I have a number of clients right now who I'm doing trauma processing work with. It's not uncommon for me to, to use like a traditional CPT ABC worksheet. Absolutely. Yeah. And then pivot towards, uh, you know, doing some diffusion techniques. Okay, so like you notice this thought comes up in this particular situation uh, and I, I like to use the sort of the framework of source of influence like how big of a source of influence does this thought based on your history need to be when you're trying to consider what's most important to you for you to do in this situation yeah
2: yeah And, and and so here and kind of taking that to the next level and really thinking about act in that process where i really started embracing kind of this idea of values based work in act was when i started working with my ocd patients Mm -hmm. Um, because they are so fused with whatever... Thought comes into their mind, right? That is their reality. Mm -hmm. And and how do they learn to trust and and kind of live their life in a way that is is not OCD-based? And that's really where we would do um, start with values-based work, right? Thinking about what is important to them. What is the life that they want to leave? Because they can get away from that and they can describe that sort of thing. And then that becomes... How they kind of when they have an OCD thought, they can ask themselves, right? To what degree is this like consistent with the value or the life that I want to lead versus not? right? So it gives them something to kind of anchor themselves when they feel like the only way they can function is to adhere to the the thoughts that come to their mind. But that that was a big shift for me, I think, in that in the concept of values-based work.
0: I think that's, in some ways, kind of what I was trying to get at when I was, uh, I guess, trying to distill down these things a little earlier, is that, yeah. at least from from some of my very strictly CBT training, you know, it had almost like thoughts have this determination kind of effect, like, you know, the, the mm-hmm. thoughts are going to, I mean, they're part of, of course, you know, uh, several different things that influence somebody's experience, they're Their emotions and their behaviors and things like that. But if we can get in there and we can adjust thoughts, then we're adjusting experience. Like the thoughts themselves have this direct impact on their experience, and it's really that. As you were just saying, that you know that's the difference. There's kind of that one extra step beyond that of okay, what does this what does mean? How much do I identify with that, and how much can I separate the thought from who I am? That diffusion. Um, And I mean, like to be fair too, you know, when I was first uh, trying to learn act and and figure out what it means and how is this different than what I've always done before. And my first impression was, you know, access, okay, that's great, but what your what your mind is saying doesn't matter. Just do what mm-hmm. works for you anyway. Yeah. And and of course it's not that, right? It's not that what your mind is saying doesn't matter. It there's a some a lot of interesting things that can come from, mm-hmm. you know, being curious and exploring that yeah. and being able to recognize the difference. And like you said, externalizing and um I like Russ Harris says not getting hooked by that and dragged all over the place, but being able to kind of think about, well, how do I respond when that thought comes up? And, you know, is that really what I want to do? Whereas with kind of the traditional CBT training that I received, it was kind of like, once you've gotten to the thought, man, you're there. Just change the thought. Everything's good. Yeah. Right.
2: But I really like that functional piece, right? Like you were saying, I think earlier, Andy, it's like, where does this take me? Right. Right. Where do I end up? If I engage with this either thought or this behavior or or whatever it is, where do I end up? And then, and then is that where I want to be? Right. Is that the place that I want to, where I want to go? Because yeah, so I think that's, go? it's like, where do you, can you identify, can you experience and, and start to make that connection early in the process? Right. Rather than, you know, you've already gotten 16 steps into this mm-hmm. sort of thing. Right. And so you start to see, it's like, ah, I know where this is taking me. Right. And that's not what, even though my, like, there's an urge for me to want to go there. Like, that's not where I want to be. And getting them to a place where they can even be able to acknowledge and and acknowledge that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. How how can our clients use their mind as a tool for their benefit um, rather than something that they need to fight or struggle with? And mm-hmm. Kevin, I think your point is a really important one. It's not that um it's not that thoughts don't ever matter. And it's it, yeah. this is even even more important when you're working with, I, I mean, I think trauma survivors and you know in maybe even in oh yeah right the like it, well
2: and, and even yeah. contamination ocd yeah
1: right it's, it's like it's, it's not that uh there is no like with ocd it's not that there is no risk and that you, yeah. you know, like if for there is absolutely just, you know and somebody who has had a you know difficult you know experiences in the past or you know even if they were just in a military setting the, the things that their mind is telling them to do rules to follow ways to cope it's not like those are you know, irrelevant, irrelevant. In fact, they might've been exactly the right things to do based on the the past, the context they Mm -hmm. were in before it's more as like, is it, are these particular thoughts, even if there's truth to them, are they the most important, useful sources of influence right now? Right. Right. And yeah, so exactly the discussion we're having today is maybe one of the things that Depend, you know, whether you're a traditional cognitive behavior therapist, an ACT therapist, or really any other therapist, when we're dealing with difficult thoughts, is uh, you know a primary thing that you want to try to be doing one way or another for your clients is helping them to really make experientially a, a distinction between them, the 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 thinker and the thoughts that they're having. Yeah, right. That's that. I I really like that idea. You know, and and, and especially to your point, Kevin, it's
2: like we can't like we can't just be like. Mm. That thought is unimportant, right? It's like we dismiss stuff all over the place and it's like, but everything has, can be dismissed. Right. Right. And how, and then the question is, well, how do we determine, how do we make a distinction right between what we pay attention to and what we don't pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's where I think that that more formal, like, spending some time thinking about what is important to us, right? Almost having some philosophical discussions with your patient, um, about like what is, and, and, you know, kind of going back to your, I was listening to your podcast earlier about religion and spirituality, right? Like let's talk about these things that, um, that really are at the center of your, your life and what's important to you. And then how do these techniques help you do that better? Mm-hmm.
0: Such a really like I don't know I gotta say that this is a great discussion because it's there's a lot of practicality and there's a lot of kind of high thinking too going on here too I'm very my my brain's very activated so i I really appreciate the discussion <laughs> well, Yeah um, no this gets lot me lots super of like events Oh well, yeah, yeah. This
2: gets me really excited about therapy <laughs> I
0: mean so like you know we we if we could keep going and we could make it season four like we said earlier because man there, there's so much so much that's related to this and I, you know, I, I'm geeking out about it. I also recognize that, you know, our, our listeners, don't necessarily have five hours to you know, give to one episode. So I'm wondering if, you know, I mean, it feels like we're kind of in a good place for today. And certainly I know we've said this to other guests too. And, and Jeff, you're our first repeat guest, but you know, perhaps we can have you come back on again in, in a future season and, and we can talk more about this or, or related things. So I, I mean, it's so fascinating to think about thinking I mean, that I, I, I don't think we do enough of that yeah. as therapists with other therapists to so think about what, you know, like it's kind of, make explicit what's implicit and even you know how are we approaching thinking about thinking but so as we're kind of wrapping up though jeff what we always do is we ask our guests for like a couple of pieces of actionable intel something that listeners can go do right after listening to this or apply to their work or you know something else they can um pursue i don't know whether that's other training or other resources or whatever but do you have a couple of thoughts for us a couple of ideas about actionable intel
2: I really think one you know what, what even what Andy you were talking about earlier is really starting to shift a little bit away from a technique based to a process-based sort of thing right uh, thinking like like my supervisor says process versus content right thinking about the processes that the patient is going to and that the the content is simply a representation right of those sorts of things and if we're always just focused on the content like that's a, that's a whack-a-mole right um, and I think also actually getting training in uh, like maybe things that diverge from your traditional, um, right. you know, because I think the more, you know, and, and this, is, this is kind of the thing that like I, I take from my computer science days. It's like, I learned my first programming language. Right. And I was like, cool. I understand programming. Right. Um, but then when I learned another programming language, I was like, oh, I'm seeing these same concepts implemented in different ways, right? And when I learned Spanish, um, you know, I learned way more about the English language and um, <laughs> how to construct a sentence and, you know, and what things are. So I think this idea of allowing yourselves to kind of be and explore multiple theories and really trying to, see, to understand, like, in many ways, it's just semantics, right? That were um, in a lot of this stuff and starting to see these connections between the different theor- theoretical orientations, even psychodynamic, right? I think there is a lot of um, connection between from, from the past um, into the future. And if we can get past the language, because I think we get to, and this is where I, I, I was just talking earlier, you know, from the concrete to the abstract, right? Um, recognizing that ACT and CBT and even Psychonauts, they do the best they can, right? To come up with language that is... Um, accurate, but at the end of the day, it's a simile, right? It's, it's a metaphor for like this, this process that we're trying to describe. So I think being able to start to see that as a therapist becomes really important.
0: So don't get locked in an echo chamber of one yeah. particular orientation. Well, I'll, I'll just
1: add one little caveat to that, Jeff. And I, I would say it's a really good. T- Time in the history of sure. psychology slash mental health work to be someone interested in process-based therapy because mm-hmm. there is now a, a, a field that is dedicated to scientifically examining and determining what are some of the most important processes. So I would say... Yep. Uh if you're interested in your your a client or a client, a therapist who's interested in evidence-based psychotherapy, I'd highly encourage you to look into process-based CBT. Yep. Uh and also if you are uh Well, and I feel interested- like something
2: like the unified protocols could be another one as well, too. Like I know there's trainings on that one that came out of kind of Barlow's lab, which it's like it does some exposure therapy and it does some um <laughs>
1: a that, little bit. that's all that's also another podcast. I, I have to say I am- <laughs> I am. I'm coming. I'm coming from the perspective. I I own it. The perspective. I'm a functional contextualist. Yep. Um. I would say, and this is not a criticism, but one difference of the unified protocol is that it is more technically eclectic. And I would argue, probably gotcha. not as process tied to processes. Yeah,
2: I I agree. With so, I like the idea. What you're saying is focus on the process and the process based CBT,
1: especially the ones that have evidence for them.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, I would love to come back. Maybe sometime we can talk more specifically about some of the evidence and process-based CBT. Yeah. Sounds great.
0: That sounds like a future
2: episode.
1: Yeah. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for joining us for the longest episode (laughs) of the season. Um, We wanted to leave you with some extra material to chew on uh, in the interim before we come back with season four. Uh, Also, thanks for listening for for our our third season. Um, Yeah. And and thanks, you guys, for having me. I really appreciate the
2: the opportunity to to kind of dig into this stuff. Yeah.
0: Great having you. Yeah, Yeah, we'll say. We talk a lot, of course, right? We've got three seasons of talking at you all. And so listeners, we want to hear from you too. Like we imagine you all are thinking about what, what these topics have been or have questions or even have thoughts about topics we can talk about, people we can talk to. Like what's on your mind? Um, you know, send us a voicemail. We, we've set up a new uh, uh, tool. It's called SpeakPipe. Actually, we didn't set up the SpeakPipe, but we have a, a SpeakPipe. So if you want to leave us a voicemail, like to you know, give us some feedback, ask us some questions, um, give us some topic ideas that you'd like to hear about. Go to SpeakPipe.com slash CDPP4P. That's all all altogether after the slash. It stands for Center for Deployment Psychology, Practical for Your Practice. So speakpipe.com slash CDP P4P. And we'd love to feature you in an upcoming episode in season four or beyond. So uh, come talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks, everybody.
2: Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice.
0: Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.